Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of Quark power meters and other kick-ass bicycle data systems. Quark power meters, collector, and shock whiz help you ride faster, improve your performance, and share your passion. Find out more at Quark.com. Welcome back to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast. This is Trevor Connor, your friendly local training coach. I'm here with my usual co-host, Kaylee Fretz, and today we bring to you two very, very knowledge, well-known cycling coaches to talk to you about training. So our first guest is Frank Overton, who is the head of Fast Cat Coaching here in Boulder, Colorado. And we also have Ryan Kohler, who is the head coach at the University of Colorado Sports and Performance Center. Did I get that right? Sports Medicine. Sports Medicine and Performance Center. Thank you. It is a mouthful. (laughs) Our topic for today is to talk a little bit about interval work. We've already talked to you about slow volume versus intervals, but now we want to get a little more into the high-intensity work and, and how to perform that. And part of the reason we have brought in Frank and Ryan is to introduce or to talk to you a little bit about two almost polar opposite approaches that are both showing a lot of different success. So Frank is one of the pioneers of what's called sweet spot training, and I'll let him talk a little bit more about that. Well, Ryan has has in the past taken much more of what's called a polarized approach. Before we talk with Frank and Ryan, it would probably help if I gave a quick explanation of training zones. I know those terms are thrown out a lot on training rides. You're certainly going to hear them a lot in this podcast, but it's good to understand what we're talking about when we say a zone two or a zone four. It might get a little bit confusing later on because Ryan's actually going to talk about polarized training and he's going to talk about a three zone model. When you read the research and a lot of the physiological research out there, they talk about three zones. Ryan's going to explain that, but for the most part during this podcast, we're referring to a five or six or seven zone model. So let me explain what those are about. And to understand the zones, you first have to know that we have two thresholds. Everybody knows about that anaerobic threshold. That's what you time trial at. That's as hard as you can go aerobically, or think about that. It's your highest sustainable effort. Beyond that, you're going you're gonna to fatigue very rapidly. We also have what's called an aerobic threshold, which is about 85% of your anaerobic threshold. That's harder to feel, and it usually needs to be tested to find out exactly where that's at. So now let's talk about the zones in the context of these two thresholds. Your easiest zone is zone one, and that's really what you do for a recovery ride. That's just very, very easy talking pace riding. Zone two is what you're going to hear a lot during the base season because that's a lot of your base work. It's getting right up towards that aerobic threshold or on that aerobic threshold. When I'm explaining it to an athlete, I say this is just slightly uncomfortable riding, but still something you can sustain for a very long period of time. Zone three is that range between your two thresholds. That's what we're going to be talking about when we say sweet spot training. Zone four is your anaerobic threshold. That's your time trial pace. That's what you're going to train at when you're doing threshold intervals. So that's really hard, but it's sustainable. 
It's your highest sustainable pace. Zone five, and then in some models, six, seven, even up to eight, those are all above anaerobic threshold intensities. So those are efforts that are very hard that you can only sustain for short periods of time. So anywhere from just a few seconds to maybe up to five minutes if, you're, if your model differentiates VO2 max training as a zone five. I hope that makes it a little clearer. I hope that gives you the information you need for, for this podcast. And with that, let's go to our experts. Thanks, Trevor. So the sweet spot is as an intensity. It's a style of training. It's 84 to 97% of your functional threshold power, uh, which produces a lot of physiological adaptations. But the sweet spot part of it is that it doesn't fatigue riders as much so that they can't train hard in the sweet spot the next day or the next day. The recovery is easier for athletes and it enables them to do more training in successive uh, days on the training plan as opposed to like a, a threshold zone four effort. So prior to the sweet spot, we had tempo and we had zone four threshold. And tempo is pretty gravy for athletes. You weren't getting enough training adaptations, but then you'd go out and do a zone four workout and the athlete would be just whacked the next day. And you can't, so you'd get like one good day of training. So the sweet spot originated, you could get like two, three, four, five days of really good training. And when you'd go back and look at the power data, the cumulative numbers were much greater when you did sweet spot than opposed to tempo or zone four threshold. As I remember correctly, you came up with this uh, method of training with this whole concept along with uh, Dr. Andy Coggins, who was one of the inventors uh, of Training Peaks and, uh, and wrote pretty much the definitive book on training with power. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So in 2003 and four, when we were developing the performance manager chart, we as athletes or members of this group, there's probably a dozen of us, we were basically taking Andy's model and putting our data in it to let him know if it worked. And so we were out there training hard. I was training for like the state time trial and, you know, the local races. And we, I would go out and train, come back, download my data, look at our how the, the TSS and the CTL stacked up in, in the performance manager chart. And I was doing a ton of sweet spot because I was like trying to get a lot of TSS out of these rides. So I just did a, a boatload of TSS. I ramped my CTL up. I took it back down, you know, and I peaked for the state road championships. And the intensity of which I rode a lot at was sweet spot. And uh, it was, like I said, it wasn't threshold. It wasn't as hard as threshold, but it was harder than tempo. And so for our listeners who don't know, what do you mean by TSS and CTL? TSS is training stress score and CTL is chronic training load. TSS is the individual uh, metric for the amount of training you do in one training rod. It's calculated from your power data, normalized power and duration and intensity factor. Chronic training load is the cumulative training effect over, it's a rolling 42-day average of all your TSS. So if you ask your buddies, hey, how much have you been training lately? They'll be like, oh yeah, you know, some. Or they could be like, well, my CTL is 90. And that's, it's the same concept. So Ryan, 
Let's ask you a little bit about the the polarized approach and, and what gravitated you towards that as a, a style of coaching. Sure. I think, you know, that approach, it uh, sort of spoke to me just because, you know, I've worked with a lot of athletes that are uh, time crunched. And one of the difficulties is that they, they have trouble sometimes uh, training at the appropriate intensity for the right amount of time. So with... Um, well, with the polarized approach, the standard approach there is about 20% of your sessions are high intensity, and then the 80% would be more in that, you know, zone two area. And the polarized approach, it that's broken up into kind of more basics, uh, basically like a three-zone model. Zone one, two, some low tempo, you know, as, um, as your zone one. That zone two is kind of the middle area where you would run up from tempo into, uh, into lactate threshold and then above that. So that would be the sweet spot range. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then that other part would be above threshold near up to maximal effort. In that approach, yeah, you would spend a small amount of time, about 20% of your sessions above threshold, and then the rest of that time would be at somewhere in that base tempo recovery realm, depending, you know, I think Frank put it nicely before where he said, you know, you're tired, but you're not tired enough to ride base. So that kind of speaks to that 80% time where, yeah, you might be really tired one time. So you need to go a little bit lower. You might not be very fatigued. So you can ride maybe a little more tempo and, um, and still maintain those aerobic adaptations. You, you guys come at the same problem with two totally different solutions. So is there any overlap between the two methods? I mean, it sounds to me, you know, if I'm trained by Ryan, I'm not going to be doing a whole lot of sort of sweet spot style training. I'm going to be either going really, really hard or really easy. Frank, you would have me doing a lot of the sweet spot stuff, and I would guess not a whole lot of other types of, of intervals, or do you work some other stuff in? Is there some overlap here? Do you sort of take ideas from each other, or each camp take ideas from the other? Yeah, I think there's a time and a place for everything, and it, it's, I think what you bring up is other types of intervals. I'm a huge proponent of uh, VO2, anaerobic, Tabata intervals, a lot of intensity. But then, it, then you're getting into the the training plan, and so when you, you know, if you go way back and you want to, you know, talk about building a base, you know, the pyramid foundation that you know Joe Friel likes to likes to tout. I mean, that's I, I'm I'm an absolute believer in that. And when I use Sweet Spot to build up that base, measured by TSS and CTL, and when I'm comfortable that the athlete, we shift from trying to raise training load to resting up the athlete, leveling off that training load, and then we'll shift over to the race-specific intensity, you know, whether that's threshold or VO2, anaerobic, Tabata, motor pacing, group rides, you know, the works. That It, it just depends on the time of the year. And we still have our athletes do a lot of just plain Jane zone two endurance work, especially when they're tired. It's like, okay, you're tired but you're not tired enough to rest. Let's do some zone two. You know, when in doubt, always ride zone two. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it, it's, um, I think season, you know, season specific sort of part over you in the year. And uh, yeah, he's a lot of um, sweet spot earlier on. And uh, like Frank said, yeah, I think to build that training load, it's, um, there's a, like definitely a time and a place for it. I've worked with a lot of like the, you know, the time crunched athletes or those like just athletes where they have some difficulty in focusing on that. So I find that, yeah, sometimes we just step back from and say, okay, like let's do some hard intervals, have fun with that. And then, cause I think it takes a lot of focus to do, um, 
certain you know, like a sweet spot workout and to, to go day after day. I mean, it's, it's hard. So, um, but yeah, I think there's that definitely give and take and just finding what works for the athlete. So is there anything in particular, uh, any particular performance or, or an athlete that you came across or just accumulated, uh, knowledge that, that sort of led you toward the methods that, that you've started using, you know, do you have an anecdote or do you have a, a data set or something like that versus, some of the other options that are out there. I mean, because obviously there are lots of different ways to get fast on a bicycle. What was it in particular that made you go with what you believe? <laughs> I, think, I think for me, it was a little bit of uh, personal experience, which helped. I think that drives every coach. I mean, when I was younger, I, I mean, I hated threshold. I hated that whole area. I never did enough of it. <laughs> and uh, so everything was like really hard or really easy. And, um, and there, you know, there was good success from that. And then I, and I've seen that also work with, uh, with some athletes where we've done very intensified training blocks of high intensity and then, um, you know, very light days after that. And it, it worked well, but you know, there was a deficit. I know, you know, going back to personal experience, I, there was a deficit at threshold. If it was long and sustained, I was, I was in trouble, <laughs> but should have been probably been racing on the track at that time, not trying to do like road races and things. So, um, but yeah, I think that helped to drive it. And, and it was, that's sort of what got me going was like short, hard on off type of efforts like that and just enjoyed it. And it kept me on the bike. It kept me fun, you know, kept me motivated. It was enjoyable. Yeah. That was a, that was a big thing for me. So a big part of your, your preferred method is, is the mental aspect then is, is you believe that certain athletes probably respond better to the sort of high, low, approach the polarized approach mentally i think some do yeah i mean it, it's uh some athletes enjoy that and then um you know going back to how i started I, the, one of the things that would change is well find a better balance between that and the threshold you know the threshold approach and riding more sweet spot things like that that would have helped to develop more completely as an athlete but yeah i think generally the short high intensity stuff is fun and if it keeps people motivated and um gets them on the bike and looking forward to it, then yeah, I think it's a, it's a good resource. But you, Frank, what, what, what sent you, you, you kind of explained the, the origins of sweet spot at the beginning of the podcast, but was there anything in particular, uh, was it your own experience? Was it the experience of a particular athlete that sort of made something click in your head and said, this is the way that I think that, that most riders should be doing it, or at least the riders that I'm going to work with are going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it started with my own personal training, you know, coaching myself, uh, my, using the power data. I, I was able to achieve like a true peak performance um, in the state time trial. That was my goal that year. And we had been experimenting with Sweet Spot. You know, it was regular testing, um, watching the data, watching your power go up from the Sweet Spot training and then applying it to athletes, um, analyzing their data, watching their power go up. And it it, it worked for a lot of athletes, so we kept doing it. We, you know, we tried it with masters, with pros, everybody in between, and everyone was getting faster, so kept using it. Sometimes if an athlete is, like Ryan hinted at, and you did too, meant the mental aspect of it, honestly, sweet spot shouldn't be that difficult mentally. It depends on how much you prescribe. I mean, I've prescribed... I have this workout called Freestyle Sweet Spot. I'm going to tell riders, I'm like, all right, I want you to go out, just drill it for three hours. It's a five-hour ride. That one's difficult mentally because the first 
hour, hour and a half is not that bad, but then you start to fatigue, run out of glycogen, and you have to bear down. Those guys hated me. They got a lot faster. I would not give that workout to a, a, a Cat 3 or a Masters athlete. It all depends. It goes back to the training plan and the amount of, of sweet spot you prescribe. You know, prescribing three hours of sweet spot is huge. But, you know, if you look at, like, like the Perry Roubaix file that came out this year, Matthew Heyman, guess what he did for five and a half hours? Sweet yeah, it was so like... That's basically a race, right? And three hours of sweet spot is, a, is an amateur. It's a, it's a cat two, cat one. Brother. Yeah. So then, now you're getting into race specificity. You know, can you do this for three hours? Are you a mountain biker? Do you need to do this for three hours? Or, you know, a lot of the... the the masters racing short short races they get after it i mean they're hard when you look at the power data it's like 95 percent of your ftp and you're hanging on for dear life that's what i know where i was going uh, for masters athletes that may find sweet spot difficult it's like oh, let's start with 30 minutes worth let's get you stronger from that and then introduce 40 minutes 45 Maybe work your way up to about an hour. I have a training tip where it's titled, How Much Sweet Spot Should You Do? And it's broken out into um, your ability level. And naturally, it goes up per your ability level. And, um, you know, it's pretty pretty small if you're a Category 4 or, you know, maybe a a 50-plus rider. So let's take some of these concepts you're, you're talking about and, and try to put this into what this would look like a bit. And I'm going to give a qualifier here that uh, understand completely what makes both of you great coaches is you don't have this template plan that you just hand to every athlete and say, go do this. That part of great coaching is learning every athlete and, and really tailoring to that athlete. And certainly anybody who, who's looking to hit a high level in the sport should be hiring coaches like you. But with that qualifier, let's take your average, let's say, master's athlete who's, who's maybe a, a Cat 4, Cat 3 type level. They're, they're getting ready, say, for the, the state championships. Looking at the, the sweet spot and the polarized approach, what would their season basically look like? And, and what would be similar and what would be different between the two approaches? And could you possibly, I, I know you're going to be a little uncomfortable with this, but yeah. just... Can we use a whiteboard? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> We'll, we'll point the microphone at the, the whiteboard. Everybody see this? I can draw it out. But could you map out map out something basic just to, to get a, a bit of an understanding of, of how how the polarized approach would look versus how the sweet spot approach would look? Yeah, and I think it also gets into training methods too. I mean, that, that kind of – that can bring us into um, – the uh you know more block training versus like the traditional approach and yeah very open question thank you (laughs) Um, so but yeah i mean broadly you know look at it as a i mean you have that base time period you build the foundation and and uh, i think that at that point yeah include sweet spot for sure zone two building that aerobic fitness and then uh you know there's that uh intensifying period where you start to do some more high intensity that might be vo2 things like that when you say a vo2 for our listeners who would know what would a a vo2 interval look like so like a four or five minute interval would be one 
you know, you might do like a four by four, five by five, six by four minutes. So six intervals of four minutes, something along, along those lines. But generally like that, you know, three, four, five minute range is a good uh, place that I consider that to be VO2. Mm -hmm. So something like that where it's above threshold and then, um, you know, the, that phase where they start to, uh, to peak for an event. And um, that's where, yeah, shorter, high intensity intervals, maximal intervals would, would come in. Just building through those ranges, and then of course adjusting the uh, the workouts to be a, you know more specific as they get closer to uh, whatever the event is. Okay. Right. What was the question again? <laughs> so we're talking Just about kidding. a. Uh, Find your overarching theory in two minutes. <laughs> uh, we're just what what it would, it's it's what it would look like taking your your average masters athlete cat three cat four level they're they're getting ready for say the state championship so that's one of their target events what would their season look like what sort of work specifically would they be doing yeah working backwards from the event um, if we have time i'll allow two to six weeks of high intensity work prior to the the first goal event and that's not including you know that's not raising training load ctl that's just raw race-specific intensity. It can include a racing block, um, a stage race. It can include a training camp, but it's going to – a lot of intervals during the week. Um, and when you say high intensity, what uh, what are the intervals looking like? Are these threshold intervals, above threshold? Zone four, five, and six. Uh, it really depends on the athlete. You know, higher on the zone six if they're a crit racer or a track rider, you know, Definitely zone four if they're a time trialist or a, a mountain biker. Um, even, I'll have mountain bikers do a boatload of zone six. VO2, if they're road racers, everyone can benefit from uh, VO2. So that's a staple. But yeah, just race specificity, depending on what the athlete's goal is, what the terrain is like of that goal event. But so working back, you know, it kind of depends on how much time you have. If you don't have a lot of time, and their training load is just wasn't that good to begin with. You know, sometimes I'll just sweet spot them and march them up as high as I can two weeks prior to the event, and then uh, just rest them up and give them like a, a week of intervals. And that you know, at that point, I, that you're doing the best you can. It really depends on how much time you have. If you plan it out, if you do six or nine months in advance, and you are able to get in all that sweet spot, the base beforehand, it's nice to stop doing that switch and, and decrease fatigue. It's that ATL, that acute training load. Yeah. Give a rest preference and then really hit out on these intervals. Concentrate on uh, being fresh for these workouts, motivated, rested. And this is where the training plan comes in. And it could be like Monday, Tuesday off, super easy. And then Wednesday is like a really hard workout <clears throat> and you can start off with a, a an introductory amount of intensity and then as the athlete goes through the uh, rest cycles week to week you can introduce a, a higher volume of intensity week after week so that you're walking them up this periodized amount of uh, intensity all right time for a quick break fast talk is sponsored by quark maker of the next generation D0 power meter platform. 
DZero is packed with 10 years of technical innovations. It also offers a choice of Bluetooth, low energy, or Ant Plus data transmission, and broader compatibility. Get the PowerMeter chassis or the DZero PowerMeter Spider for power-ready OEM bikes. Find out more at quark.com forward slash DZero. Now, you said if you plan out ahead of time, you can do um, that base work, which is a lot of sweet spots. So what would their, their base phase look like? What, what would be their primary work? In a, in a traditional weekly training plan model, uh, Tuesday sweet spot, Wednesday tempo, Thursday zone two. I, I call it a fatigue-dependent model. You just go with the grain of the fatigue. So you do your, your most high-powered, harder, most difficult workout following a rest day, presumably Monday. But a lot of that, you know, it depends on what the athlete has. You know, group rides, group rides a lot of time wind up being a lot of sweet spot, right? which is nice. You know, a lot of climbing is also very good for sweet spot tempo. So we're really concentrating on TSS a lot of times. And it's like, all right, let's just, let's maximize the amount of training you have. If you've got an hour at lunch, let's go do an hour of power. That mostly is sweet spot. <laughs> right. So they're not doing in the base a lot above sweet spot. They're not doing those zone five, six workouts. No. It's, it's all below yeah, threshold. Sub thrash. Not even, I don't, I for the motivated athlete that tends to be impatient and really maybe train a little bit harder than he or she should at that time of year, I'll really uh, emphasize let's stay away from zone four. And it, you have to do that on the group rides. It, it, so you have to know the the strength of the group ride relative to the ability level of the athlete. Right. You know, the, the cat ones, twos, you can send them out on group rides and just – Hey, let's do some sitting in. I don't want you to do any attacking, no counterattack. This is just just some good miles with company. But if you you know if you send a master or a cat four or a cat three to that group ride, you can count on a lot of a lot of TSS. Yes, and that's a good tool. It's a very good tool. You might have to coach them along the way of like, hey, let's not suffer for more than 10 minutes at a, at a time and really, really dig deep here in January. Why don't you just self drop yourself? This is not a race and find a, another, a group of athletes that have come off the group. Group rides are tremendous for that, but yeah, no, no zone four at all. So Ryan, how do you feel about that? Do you believe in, in any sort of above threshold work in the base season or do you think it should all be kept lower as well? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> lower for the most part, but then um, I do subscribe to that that block theory. Zone four, I, I agree. I minimize that. It, I mean, completely. If you can take it out completely, perfect. In the base phase, I do like some shorter uh, type of intervals, you know, I mean, 15, 30 seconds, things like that. Short sprints, short efforts like that, that can complement that aerobic development well. And uh, you could do things like, you know, I mean, even neuromuscular type of workouts, big gear things uh, where the, you know, the power might be up into those higher zones, but you're not doing like a focus zone four workout where you're going to be just really blown after that. But yeah, short stuff in a zone five and a little bit above for short time periods, I think complement that, that base really well. So both of you have mentioned avoid the zone four workout. What, for, for our listeners who might not know, what would you de- describe as zone four? Two by twenties, full gas. Three by ten, 
full gas. Right at that anaerobic threshold. Yeah, um, 97 to 104%. Yeah. I'd like to echo what uh, Ryan said about the neuromuscular work. We absolutely have athletes do that. The 15 second, you know, bursty cadence work. Um, that's really good for athletes to do. I wouldn't exactly call that building the base, but it's a good thing to do in the off season. Um, but getting back to the group rides, I do like for athletes, I like the bursty nature of group rides for training during the base period. It keeps them sharp, but what I just, I don't want to have happen is it just turn into like this death march, hang on for dear life, suffer and, and hate cycling and kind of goes to some mental periodization where I, right. I don't want them to peak for the, it's a, the group ride hero, you know, it's like, just let yourself get dropped and, and find a, find a, you know, a suitable, su- suitable group to ride with. When Kaylee and I were up in Fort Collins, there was a local group ride there that went all winter. And there was one rider who was a, a master's athlete that everybody in Fort Collins worshiped because he would just destroy this group ride all through January and February. And they would say, oh, so everybody would try to mimic his training. And when I'd say, you shouldn't be going full gas at a group ride in December, they go, well, look how well he does. And my response would always be, how's he do during the race season? Oh, we've never seen him at a race. <laughs> you go, right. His season's January and February. That's why he's winning the group ride. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, group ride hero. Frank, you've been talking a lot about uh, power meters. Is there, um, I, I would assume that probably many of our listeners have, have power meters, but not all. Uh, at the very least, they probably have access to a heart rate monitor, which are very cheap these days. Uh, is either one of these methods more or less conducive to a rider without a power meter? Because um, obviously they both work very well if you have one. You can sit right in zones that you need to sit in. But uh, is, for example, is a polarized approach easier if you don't have a power meter or is a sweet spot approach easier if you don't have a power, power meter just either based purely off of feel or heart rate or something that's not still five $600? I'd say the, pol- the polarized approach is easier with a heart rate monitor. Zone 2, I have athletes use heart rate over wattage in zone two a lot of times because that's what's going on in their body and and then i look to see if their wattage was zone two at that at those heart rates in terms since sweet spot relies so heavily on tss and and ctl if you don't have power data i would worry that uh the the athlete is going too hard relative to the fatigue it's more difficult to coach an athlete without a power meter it really is, and it sounds self-serving, but I would probably have to take a more conservative, polarized approach to their training w- without a power meter. You agree? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, it, you know, we've we've done it for years without power and heart rate, but once we started to get those tools, I think it really helped us. There you go. It, it, um, yeah, it really helped us uh, achieve what we wanted with our, with our athletes easier. It was easier to coach them, easier to teach them. They can, they can learn on their own, too, once they see that data. Yeah, I mean, I think we can, but it's very difficult. And I would agree, yeah, with Frank on Sweet Spot because it is. It's, it's such a, you know, a, a narrow range compared to the whole spectrum. And what we're looking for is, is very particular in that. So um, it's, it's difficult to do. If they have, even if they have a really good sense for their body, you know, it's still not perfect without power or heart rate. Let's actually talk for a minute with Phil Guyman, who is now a retired pro tour rider. 
He's worked pretty much his whole cycling career with Frank and has a lot to say about the, the coach-athlete relationship. Frank's job is to tell me I'm supposed to feel, and I tell him how, how I do feel. And uh, generally those mesh up. <laughs> Frank's, I've been with him a long time. I'm, I'm gonna, I was with him one year, and I was like, I'm going to write out my career with this guy. He knows what he's doing, and I like him. Yeah, he, he really went into TSS when I interviewed him, so it'll, uh, I think, that's, make yeah, it. That's, that's, his, that's his job. It's the, the, I mean, the coach's job is to assume that the athlete is doing their job, which is minimizing the other factors. And, yep. and my job would be to, to, to be like, hey, man, like, here's, you know, here's why I, I need an extra two hours tomorrow because I, I ate a deep dish pizza or... Or I, you know, I, I had a girl over last night, and I need today off. That's that's all. That's all my responsibility. Probably won't put this in, but I got to tell you, I interviewed Phil a couple of days ago, and he did the. Yeah, Frank loves that TSS. I like to go by how I feel. <laughs> Finished the interview, and I went. So is Frank going to get rid of you after I put these quotes in the article? <laughs> He actually had a good response. He's like, no, it's Frank's job to analyze all that stuff. I just, my job is to ride the way I feel. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame him. Those those guys ride their bikes so much. To have that power meter staring at them in the face 30 hours a week when you're completely wrecked from a stage race and your coach is saying you should train. Yeah, you don't you don't really care if you're hitting your tss or sweet spot it's like dude i'm tired so i always listen to the athlete over the the power data the science and the art is taking what they're saying and blending it with what the data is telling you but from a mental perspective yeah you know phil if i could now make a a comment back to that (laughs) if i had been in on that conversation there are some days where he lights it up And killer training rides. And then he's like, hey, look at the TSS. I'm like, well, (laughs) hell yeah. (laughs) So the other thing that won't go in the article, but I will say, so I don't start a fight here, is uh, one of the first things he said is, he said, first conversation I had with Frank, I could tell he knew what he was talking about, and he was my coach for life. So he did say that. Oh, that was a very nice compliment. So I want to hit you with, with kind of a hard question, but this is actually something um, I was really researching for an article that um, I read recently that does relate to what we were just talking about. There is a lot of research coming out right now, and some scientists who are now saying, you know what, and, and I'll give you some examples before I ask you guys to, to answer. They're saying the different types of interval work, the different types of work just doesn't matter. So, for example, there was the, the Broussard study that just came out this year, 2016, where they had athletes either doing five to seven minute intervals at 85% of their, their VO2 max. So that put them around threshold, maybe a little below. Uh, had another group doing 30 second more Tabata style intervals. Had them train for six weeks and the improvements were identical. Not only aerobic improvements, but they had equal anaerobic improvements. We've all seen all the research on, on sprint intervals, where we, if you remember the whole surprise when people were doing sprint intervals and seeing dramatic improvements in their endurance. And then you even have that, that, the biochemical review by Larson, who really showed that all these different types of work all ultimately 
funnel in on PGC1 alpha, which then regulates the, the endurance adaptation. So since they all go through the same pathway, it really doesn't matter. Just, just do a ton of work. You can do sprints, you can do thresholds, you can do endurance work. It just all produces the same gain, so who cares? How do you two feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of our job as coaches is to distill all that information and then, yeah, prescribe the correct amount to the athlete based on their needs. I mean, there's a specificity principle and and that's that's big for any athlete. But basically what all this research is saying is that specificity doesn't exist. Well, specificity for their events, not physiology. That's okay. how I look at it that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can, yeah, we can get a we can get mitochondrial adaptation through carbohydrate restriction, but, but that doesn't mean that they're going to race any better. So we could do, you know, I think we can, we have to tailor those workouts to say, okay, if you're going to race a crit, then you need this kind of training versus if you're just doing uh, uh, a recreational century ride, for example, we would train you a different way. And yeah, those two people might come out with very similar adaptations physically, but, um, you know, the, the way we get them there is, I think, where that, that art of coaching comes into play. Frank, do you agree, or, or how do you feel about all this research that's coming out? I think they're flawed studies. Okay. <laughs> no, the bold I, statement. <laughs> you know, I think this is a great example where the laboratory data diverges from what happens in real life. And I would hope that my athletes compete against the athletes that follow whatever is coming out of the lab in these studies because I'm 99.789% sure that they'll beat them every time. And also the specificity, if, so, that you're, so we're talking about specificity, there's no such thing. Is that that's So common? basically what the, these studies are, are getting at is, is exactly that. In terms of training adaptations, you can do sprints, you can do threshold work, and, and you're, you're going to get pretty much the same adaptations. It's more talking in terms of the, the different types of interval work. You know, should you be doing the five-minute VO2 intervals? And the, should you be doing the longer, what you were calling the zone four workouts? Or should you be doing sprints and Tabatas? Basically, a lot of these studies are coming out and saying, you know what, they're all the same gains. Pick your interval, go have fun. Well, as long as they're going as hard as they can... I can see something to that. I do think there's a mental aspect of specificity. Like take Rio, for example. That was a 8K climb. I'm pretty sure Mara Abbott did a lot of 8K climbed intervals or broke them up. I mean, and that's a mental aspect. She knows she needs to go hard for that length of time, full gas. I mean, she would not be doing one-minute intervals or, or intervals of a, of a different length. Maybe she did, but I think you get my point. But, yeah, if you're doing – um state road race in Oklahoma and there's a five minute crosswind section, you should do five minute VO2s. It's like practice, practice how you want to play. I don't know. I don't think you can prove that in the laboratory or get data out of that. You should right. ask a sports psychologist. Right. You know, with saying that almost any interval does that, I think we also see that when we look, see these athletes in the lab where they'll, they see that and they say, oh, good, I can go do anything. I feel like sprints today. I feel like threshold tomorrow. Great. But then, um, I feel like we see a lot of athletes in our physiology lab that come in under-recovered or there's a few other things that, that could be going on or they're just not resting enough. And to say that when athletes are sort of given that blanket statement, to say, yeah, maybe intervals 
you could do whatever you want. I think they also run the risk of overcooking themselves. And then that's where we can, we see that in the data down the road anyway. And that's where we end up bringing them back and say, okay, let's periodize your training a bit more so that you can get more rest because the rest is a big part of it too. So are you also then saying that, let's even suppose there is some truth to this and you, you, you can interchange intervals a bit. Is it a good idea for an athlete to say, you know what, today I'm going to go do threshold intervals. Tomorrow or in a couple of days I'll do Tabatas. Then maybe I'll do sprints and just, you can do any type of interval. So why don't you do them all through a week or do you feel, yeah, you might get similar training adaptations, but pick one. Do sprints, do them for six weeks or pick thresholds do those for six weeks can you mix them up or should you really be picking one and, and and really focusing on it i like to mix it up unless the athlete is absolutely laser focused on one event and some athletes do um just train for one event whether it's a fondo or a state time trial or a, a road race if they were doing just the state time trial I would even have them do some VO2 and anaerobic work because if you can tap into those energy systems and derive power from your anaerobic system to contribute to your threshold system, it's not like a light switch, it's a dimmer switch and you derive power from all sorts of the three energy pathways. So if if they're weak in the anaerobic department because they're a really good time trialist, you know, you can have them do 1-minute intervals begin to derive some power there and take their power up to the next level. So I will have even athletes that have a laser focus on one specific event that you would think necessitates like all threshold. I'll still keep it pretty well-rounded. And same thing for uh, criterium racers. You know, you think just sprint, 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 anaerobic all day long, but they can also benefit from threshold work too. It seems to me that if we, if we are supposing that these studies are correct and that essentially you can go out and get the same end-of-the-line adapta- adaptation from a whole d- bunch of different types of intervals, that really places the uh, – I guess it would make the coaching even more important because then at that point you are you are essentially just figuring out how to run up against that fatigue wall still properly, right? Even if they all produce the exact same result, you still have – that fatigue wall that you run up against and the time issues that you run up against. And so sort of regardless, you still have to tailor these programs for, for an athlete. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, that's, I think left to their own devices, we see that athletes typically under recover and it's, and that's where we need to, um, yeah, just figure out that, that approach of how can we get them, you know, motivated, get them to enjoy what they're doing so they continue doing it. And if it's a mixture of intervals, then that's great. If we do something like that, I still think there's a point where you need to have some sort of a focused time period to say, okay, we need to get down to brass tacks and like, this is what's going to help you for your event. And maybe it's a shorter time period, but yeah, there's got, there's definitely give and take in there. So it definitely sounds like you two feel that there are, you don't fully agree with the studies. You do feel there are benefits to the different types of, of intervals and there really are different classes. So you have your sprint intervals, you have your Tabata-style intervals, which are those those very short 20, 40-second all-out efforts with even shorter recoveries. You, you have those four or five-ish minute VO2 max intervals. You have threshold intervals, and then you have, you have sweet spot work. When would you recommend each? Like what, if you have an athlete come to you, um, what sort of weaknesses or areas uh, 
would you be targeting with each type of interval, if that makes sense? When we look at, um, you know, the lower end of that, of that spectrum, we're looking at more of those aerobic gains or fat oxidation, and that's going to be more through that zone one up to even toward that sweet spot. We go, you know, threshold point above that into that zone four area where we look at, you know, are they able to, um, to buffer, uh, the, um, that, that reduced pH in the body? Are they able to tolerate those higher levels of lactate? How long can they sustain that? You go above it and it's working on that, that glycolytic capacity, that anaerobic glycolytic, where it's like, how can you tap into that carbohydrate storage that you have? And, um, you know, and, and then can you recover from it? So like from the long, the longer intervals, and then as we get higher and higher, we get those shorter intervals all the way up to zone five, zone six, very short sprint efforts. We're tapping into different area different energy systems and different capabilities in the body so um from that aerobic at low the low end all the way up to yeah that glycolytic uh, anaerobic capacity at the top end and generally i find with athletes they're usually deficient aerobically because they tend to come in not doing enough base work you know they tend to fall into a little bit of tempo a little bit of threshold and uh they don't have it very well organized yet so we tend to focus a lot on the that aerobic component and then by doing that and getting more rest by pulling out some of that uh that threshold time um and organizing it better then it allows us to have them you know do even better work at around threshold and that sweet spot area and then do even better work above threshold so they can really get into that race pace Frank, how about you? When you're having your athletes do high intensity, how do you pick which type of interval work you want them to do? Race specificity. We know the power demands of all the disciplines of uh, cycling races now with years of power data. So it really just comes down to, um, are they a crit racer? This is what they have to do from a power demand standpoint. This is what they should do with their intervals. And that's mostly anaerobic and Tabata style intervals. Mountain bikers, same thing, anaerobic work. But then mountain bikers have a lot of climbing, so that's steady, sustained threshold, a lot of threshold work. You know, road racers, VO2s, it depends on the road race, maybe. But, yeah, we just look at the power demands of the race and apply that to the training. Okay. So you really, with your athletes, then, you really want to know what type of races they're doing. You want to know what their target events are, and it's really tailoring them to those those types of events. Absolutely. And then knowing their strengths and weaknesses, which you're going to find out through working with them, you train your weaknesses and you maximize your strengths. If they're super good at threshold, if they're a time trialist that wants to do well in a road race that uh, has a couple of punchy climbs, you know, we'll concentrate on the power demands of those punchy climbs, you know, VO2s and some anaerobic work. And, you know, maybe not focus so much on their, uh, you know, the threshold intervals because they're already good at that. And, and, and also, inevitably, a road racer will get in a situation, even a mountain biker will get in a situation where they have to sprint at the end to beat that one person. And, man, do they wish they had done some sprint work. So once in a while, if I can squeeze that in, and I'll tell them that, um, and that, that becomes a learning point. It's like you're going to get in a situation where you need to out-sprint one guy to get the win or the result you want, and that's why we're doing these. And I know you're a mountain biker, and there's no such thing as sprinting and mountain biking, but 
we're doing it. And probably a point of confidence as well. If you know you've done your sprint work, you come up against one guy at the finish line, you're like, I got this fool, right? That's right. <laughs> I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a be Peter Sagan and sit on his wheel and <laughs> pimp him at the end. It was great to have Ryan and Frank on the podcast today. I like having differing viewpoints. And those two are sort of from, I don't want to say opposite, but from different ends of the, uh, the coaching spectrum these days. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Velo News Podcast, which covers news, uh, well, racing news and analysis and things like that. And I am also on that podcast if you just love the sound of my voice. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews, on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews, and you can personally follow Trevor and I on Twitter at Kaylee Fretz and at Coach underscore T. Connor. Fast Talk is produced by Velonews, which is owned by Competitor Group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, I am Kaylee Fretz. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 